In 2010, the Capitol in Topeka was abuzz with 125 representatives and 40 senators eager to take on the state's political challenges. This 165-person group included Senator Laura Kelly, now the governor, and Senator Jeff Collier, who made it to the governor's office a step ahead of her. The roster included Senator Tim Hulskamp and Representative Kevin Yoder, who were later elected to Congress. Senator Derek Schmidt is currently the Attorney General. Scott Schwab, who is the Kansas Secretary of State, was in the House back then. And Vicki Schmidt, the state's insurance commissioner, was over in the Senate as well. That half dozen or so folks moved on by climbing the political ladder, but they were the tip of the iceberg in terms of the decade's legislative exodus. Ten years later, only eight of 40 senators and 14 of 125 representatives still hold those elected positions. Quite a change. I welcome back to the Kansas Reflector podcast Bob Beatty of Washburn University and Professor Michael Smith of Emporia State University to examine legislative turnover in Kansas and check the pulse of a few other political issues. Welcome to you both. Um, well, goodness, Bob Beatty, uh, Kansas doesn't have term limits like Missouri, and by the looks of things, we don't need any kind of artificial restrictions to get fresh faces in the Capitol. But what's going on here with this turnover? Well, when I uh, thought about the years that you cited, my mind started uh, racing about so many different factors that cause have caused turnover in Kansas. And I'm going to list some of them, and then uh, Dr. Smith, I'm sure, will will chime in as well to add on to to what I'm saying. But here's here's what I thought of. First of all, um, we've seen uh, in Kansas a lot of what we would call internecine warfare, specifically in the Republican Party. So whereas maybe in years past you would get a, for example, a moderate Republican. And that moderate Republican stays in the legislature for, you know, 20 years or something. Well, we all know that in 2012, uh, the conservative Republicans in Kansas decided to take out the moderates in their own party in primaries. We've heard the term getting primaried. And this was pretty much unprecedented. This had simply never happened. So that's a new thing, which is this idea that a party has a legislator who's been there a few terms. And in the old days, I say that like an old person, you know, dad from Peppa Pig, the olden days, you know, that person would serve and, and be in the party for many years. Well, and starting in 2012 in the Republican Party in Kansas, the conservatives wanted essentially their goal was 100 percent. Uh, conservative legislators, and they went after numerous Republicans in the Senate, and they were successful. So that that explains a lot of that turnover. The second thing is, in the last 10 years, the effects of Citizens United writ large, which is the allowance of corporations and what we call dark money to involve itself in politics, has really become pronounced. And so a lot more money has come into Kansas and in the, the legislative races. And that's kind of scary to many uh, candidates they, or even incumbents. They have to raise more money. And they'll also have races now where they don't even know where the money's coming from that's going after them. It's political action committees. And and so there's all finally we know and just in the last few years, but it happened before Donald Trump is that is a more toxic nature of politics. Okay, so some legislators who get into the legislature, you know, maybe they're even a little naive. Oh, I'm going to join the citizens legislature. 
and then they get in there and it can it can become very very toxic and they're like okay that's enough of this for me so i, I would say the factors are republican primaries really uh, getting you know unprecedented nature of those the the effect of money uh the toxic nature of politics and i should add that more money now is being spent in kansas legislative races than in the, uh, ever before in history professor michael smith what would you like to add to uh, mr Beatty's list well speaking of money one place where we're not spending money is paying our legislators the mm-hmm. uh, legislative pay in kansas is very poor um, I know that the conventional wisdom is, well, they're only in session four months a year, but that's misleading. Uh, first of all, there are special ses- sessions. There's also running for re-election. Um, and, of course, there's that fundraising that Bob was just talking about. Um, not only that, but when they're in session, the hours are exhausting. They frequently make policy in the middle of the night, uh, especially toward the end of the session. Not that that's a good way to make policy. But it is exhausting. Um, so legislative pay is another issue there. Yep. Um, you know, about uh, uh, 15 years ago, I studied term limits in states that have them, which Kansas does not. Although we like to say here in Kansas, we actually do have a term limit for legislators. It's called low pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't have official term limits like Missouri or California or Ohio or other states do. And, you know, it's so interesting because the conventional wisdom says if you rotate, you know, politicians and diapers should be changed regularly and for the same reasons was what Robin Williams said in the movie Man of the Year. But, you know, it's not true. You put in your term limits, you do not get private citizens from all walks of life, nurses, truck drivers, teachers, and so forth, running for the legislature. Not at all. What you get is the same politicians rotating from office to office. It's a grueling, exhausting, and as Bob pointed out, even toxic job these days. You're not going to have private citizens just leaving their families behind to go do a job like this. So you bring in term limits and you have rotation in office. You don't have people from all walks of life serving like like Thomas Jefferson envisioned or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I also would think that other factors just could be things that, that have always existed. The time away from family the occupational conflicts that people may have. You know, a farmer may be able to be there in the wintertime, and maybe that's con- more convenient. There's long uh, drive times that yeah, are that are yeah. also bad. Bob? Can I add one more thing? Yes, sir. I, th- I think, um, you know, also I'd like to add, again, the rise of money. But it's not just the money. It's what what is this money being spent to do? And when we look in the past, I mean, what we've also seen is this the rise of uh, communication techniques. Uh, so it used to be, again, in the olden days, uh, radio, uh, leafleting, things like that. Maybe not rarely a TV ad in a, le- in a state legislative race. But there is actually it could be kind of difficult to spend money. Uh, you know, I was talking to former Governor Mark Parkinson, who was in the legislature in the 90s, and he said, uh, basically, if you were willing to go door to door twice, hit every door twice, you could really you could win a race, no matter if you're a moderate in, uh, or a conservative. Nowadays, we have the nationalization of American politics, and then we have all this money. And, of course, the effect of social media. So uh, I'm sure we've all, you know, been driving around in our car during a Kansas legislative uh, election season. Here, And I hear radio ads where, the, where they'll attack uh, 
a legislator, but they'll be talking about Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer or something like that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. A national Ridiculous. issue. So that idea of what we used to call home style, which is where a legislator could get a personal relationship, that can be destroyed with an, you know, get convincing voters that no, you really don't like your legislator who's been there for eight years because he or she is aligned with, you know, XYZ on a national issue. So that's where we see the influence of these political action committees that are national groups. One example is Americans for Prosperity or maybe some others that uh, target legislators. And we're going to see more turnover if those legislators are targeted, especially under national issues. Michael Smith, do you think there's we run risk with this kind of turnover to not having much institutional knowledge? I, I know I, you can stay too long, but maybe the short termers just cause additional problems. I absolutely agree. You know, there's a natural turnover anyway. People who are in the state legislature may want to run for another office, such mm-hmm. as Congress. They may want to go back to um, their other job or family responsibilities, retirement. There's just a natural turnover. The nice thing about having experienced legislators is that they can mentor the newer legislators. They can show them the ropes and they can go over uh, why certain policy ideas that sound at the surface like they might be a great idea uh, actually may not work because they've been tried in the past and they didn't work out like it was hoped. Uh, and so it, it's not that we want all of our state legislators to be people that have been there for 20 years or more, but we want a few so that they can have that mentorship role with the newer ones. Uh, and back in the day, uh, that would even cross party lines. There were Democrats, for example, that were widely respected, out like Bruce Larkin, uh, by Republicans for their institutional memory. And we're really losing that now. And it's becoming all about ideology and the party caucus. And I think that's too bad. Mm-hmm. For the record, I want to say Democratic Senator David Haley of Kansas City is the longest serving senator at the moment, having entered in 1994. Senator Dennis Pyle from up north is uh, the longest serving Republican over in the House. Representative Barbara Ballard, a Democrat from Lawrence, has been in the House for the longest. She came in in 1992. Uh, Brenda Landwehr is the uh, longest tenured Republican starting in 94, but the caveat is that she stepped away for a few years. And also a dozen House members that were there in 2010 moved at some juncture in the last decade over to the Senate. But even there, only five of those 12 people that move from the House to the Senate remain in the Senate. So the turnover is is high. So if you put all that together, a maximum of 27 people who are in the legislature in 2010 are there right now, or 16%. Another subject that could have uh, perhaps an effect on, on, on turnover in the legislature is redistricting. And I want to ask you both uh, about the upcoming a drama of redrawing boundaries for the Kansas House, the Kansas Senate, and the U.S. House. The State Board of Ed boundaries are redrawn as well, but they, I think they reflect Senate, uh, a cluster of Senate districts. So the main focus is on the legislature and the U.S. House. So, uh, one of you take a shot at what's going on or what's your thinking about, uh, the intrigue? Well, Michael's been, uh, working on this, I think, recently, so we'll let him go at it right now. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, it's a two-step process. One step is complete. That step is called reapportionment. 
And that's when the census reallocates the uh, House seats among the states. There was some concern that Kansas could lose one of its four House seats. That did not happen. Um, and so we know Kansas has four seats again. Now the question is redistricting, re- redrawing those districts. Kansas is very old school. Um, in California, former Governor Schwarzenegger championed this we draw the line system, they call it, where uh, uh, commissions of citizens who are registered as independent of any political party um, and don't hold elective office and aren't re- registered lobbyists draw the maps for the state's districts. Uh, in Iowa, they have a bipartisan commission, which is banned from looking at political data when drawing the maps. <laughs> and the maps uh, cannot be redrawn by the state legislature. Uh, in Missouri, there's a bipartisan commission with a three-judge panel breaking the tie and equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans on the commission. Um, and so Kansas is is very, very old school. Um, Kansas draws the district as regular legislation. The only check is the two houses on each other, which usually they defer to each other except on the congressional map, and then the governor's veto. Um, in 2012, Kansas only had four districts to draw versus 52 in California, but yet Kansas was the last state in America to complete its congressional map due to a dispute over the NBAF facility in uh, Manhattan. So um, um, I personally would love to see Kansas kind of get with the times, go to a bipartisan or a citizens commission um, and limit the ability of the legislators to redraw the maps. But uh, but uh, this is Kansas, and, and Kansas often likes to do things old school. Bob Beatty, help us with the argument that Kansans should keep an eye on this process. Sometimes when there's not an election going on, people don't pay perhaps as much attention. But kind of pull it down to a, a local level. We, we know this is a highly partisan, highly political process. Oh, yeah, that that's true. And, you know, again, if uh, Kansas was a, a heavy, heavily Democratic state, I would at least argue the same thing in terms of uh, my criticism of the process. It happens to be a Republican state. But, you know, it is it is incredibly undemocratic to want all of your. Uh, seats at the national level to be one party. And so the background to this is that several uh, high-profile Kansas Republicans have openly stated that's their goal. Susan Wagle, who was the former president of the um, Kansas Senate, a Republican, uh, famously said that uh, last year that, you know, they're going to get the Sharice Davids, who's a Democrat, out. And, and the way you do that is through redistricting. So when you think about it, though, it's, it's, it is again incredibly undemocratic for a state that might vote, uh, in a percentage wise or be a percentage wise 40 or 43 percent, um, one party, then the other party want to run the table and not, not have any representation from that party at the national level. So that's what Kansas Republicans are shooting for to really do, um, get a Democrat out of up in the third district. But where it can, you know, the question and Michael can add to this is whether how problematic it might be in, in the Kansas legislature. Uh, obviously, those those districts can be be drawn as redrawn as well, although you could argue that probably the biggest discrepancy in Kansas politics at the legislative level is that uh, conservatives tend to win Republican primaries 
And so they're probably overrepresented uh, in the legislature um, as, as one example. But, uh, you know, we're not going to go to proportional representation, which many European countries do. But the reason they have it, which is you get seats commensurate to the percentage you get, is because many European countries actually fear the damaging effects of the discrepancy between you know, one party's uh, representation in a state and then how many actual seats they end up getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael, Michael Smith, can you talk a bit about Sharice Davids? She's the U.S. representative from Kansas City, Wyandotte County, and Johnson County, and about how they might be able to rejigger her district to undercut her support? Well, I'd be happy to. Um, first of all, big picture. Um, Kansas did keep its four congressional districts this time, but that doesn't mean they'll be the same ones. Um, Kansas continues to have population migration from west to east, with Johnson County and Lawrence in particular showing a lot of growth. Manhattan's showing some growth, too. Um, and then western Kansas and also um, parts of uh, northeastern and southern eastern, southeastern and north central Kansas continuing to show population decline. So we may still have four districts, but they're going to have to be redrawn. And, of course, when a district uh, is too big in terms of population, you have to shrink its geographic size. That would be the third district around Kansas City represented by Sharice Davids. When a district has too few people, it has to grow in geographic size. That would be the first district or what we call the big first uh, represented by Tracy Mann in central uh, and western Kansas. And so then you have to reshuffle the other two districts around that, the Wichita area district and the second that includes Topeka and a lot of eastern Kansas. Uh, and so it's sort of a domino effect. How do we make the first district bigger to get more people, make the third district smaller to shed people, and then domino effect through the second and fourth districts to rebalance? Um, now, in terms of Sharice Davids, anybody trying to crack that district to get her out of office runs immediately into a huge problem. Now, back in the day, say when Dennis Moore first got elected as a Democrat from the predecessor of that district, he didn't win Johnson County. He just kept it close, losing it by a narrow margin. And then the Democrats in Wyandotte County gave him his winning margin. Now, uh, after he'd served in office for a while, he was winning in Johnson County, but that's not how it started. Sharice Davids came in right out of the box, winning Johnson County outright. Wyandotte County just added to her margin of victory. And in 2020, Johnson County voted for Joe Biden, the first time Johnson County voted for a Democrat for president since Woodrow Wilson. And so you can't just remove Wyandotte County and put it in the second district and fix this, you have to split Johnson County. Now, back in the day, that would be a political suicide. Johnson County has 20% of the state's population, 25% of the state's GDP, and they don't want to be split. That is, is on the East Coast, they call it a third rail, like the third rail in the subway. It carries the electricity, you touch it, and you die. Back in the day, messing with Johnson County was a third rail. So the question is, what's going to prevail? The partisan interest in trying to remove Representative Davis or the traditional politics that Johnson County is the big dog in Kansas politics and you don't mess with them. And uh, it'll be an interesting process to watch. Mm-hmm. Another thing to watch, Mr. Beatty, will be the Kansas governor's race. And I think the Republican 
um, nomination and uh, decided in August 2022 is appears to be between Attorney General Derek Schmidt and former Governor Jeff Collier. Of course, Laura Kelly, the governor, the Democratic governor, is running for re-election. Bob, how do you how do you see this taking shape so far, a year out? Yeah, the key there, Tim, is that phrase, a year out. In, in, in some ways, politically, this is a, an odd race for me because it's like a, I don't know, I, I, I need help with my uh, back to the future analogies, but it's an odd time, uh, time machine type deal because essentially the race being this far out is being, it seems like the issues are being settled upon this far out. And all the way to the end. And what those issues are, are reflecting, again, national issues, uh, which is, uh, you know, things like uh, crime. Well, it could be that crime is lower in a year. But, you know, you, the candidates, Derek Schmidt and Jeff Collier, are, are seeming to lock themselves in into cultural issues, um, such as a critical race theory. And then pandemic issues. Again, in a year, Thank goodness, maybe the pandemic may be a uh, not so a happy memory, but it may be a year over. And maybe by then, you know, it was a year ago and the, the two main Dem- uh, Republican candidates seem to be locking in these issues uh, that in a year may really not be that relevant. In the end of the day, in Kansas, yes, we've got so many different things going on, but there do seem to be some some issues that are timeless. Always it's going to be education. Uh, taxes are going to be a big issue. But right now, you know, those aren't being talked about unless they're linked to the pandemic or, or, or one of these other national issues. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael Smith, uh, talk a little bit about what uh, Governor Kelly is looking at. Uh, just kind of peer through her microscope at how she might be setting herself up for her reelection bid. Um her main challenge, and I think in particular independent or what's sometimes called dark money will be poured into this, uh, challenging her, will be the problems at the Kansas Department of Labor with the unemployment benefits. Now, that's misleading, as political ads so often are on all sides, because the Kansas Department of Labor's problems go back to the 1980s when they stopped updating their computer systems and so forth. Um, and uh, part of it was the Equifax breach, an international credit reporting agency breach in 2017. And that affected many other states besides Kansas. So uh, it's not really fair to dump that on the governor. However, um, the governor does have this pattern where she's a little slow to respond and then she warms up to speed and then she she gets things done. And there was this slowness to respond and she is going to be beaten bloody over that, mainly by independent expenditure funded advertising. Um, in terms of other things, I think she's still got a good issue in schools. Um, the school funding formula benefits rural school districts, and, of course, it's very popular in Johnson County, where the voter turnout rate tends to be quite high. Um, so that's an issue that's likely to work in her favor. Um, and then, of course, as Bob pointed out, we've got all this wild card culture war stuff going on, but that will be in part big in the Republican primaries. Um, it'll also be used for get-out-the-vote drives after the primary but so many of the culture war stuff is you're on whatever side you're on, and that's that. Mm-hmm. I, I should add that uh, 
one of the interesting dynamics of this race is obviously the two Republican candidates. Uh, you know, Jeff Collier was, yes, he was governor for a short period, but in many ways he's most strongly associated with being lieutenant governor to Sam Brownback. And so the Laura Kelly campaign is watching that primary with great interest because I, I think they will run a, you know, different campaigns, whether it's Derek Schmidt or Jeff Collier. They have, uh, certainly have a, a plan in already in their, their drawer for Jeff Collier. <laughs> and as Michael said, it'll largely involve education. It still might with Derek Schmidt, but it really will with Collier because the argument would be, well, it's Collier Brown back. He put the budget in peril. And when the budget's in peril, then education suffers. You know, I think I just wrote it, but it's not hard. Well, Bob, thank you for that transition to education. So I'm curious about one final topic today. And, and given that you're both college professors, there's controversy about the teaching of subjects related to race in America. The tag is critical race theory, uh, which is, appears to be a threat to some. Um, have you guys personally observed a push from your colleagues or the students about how you talk about voting rights, for example, in your in your classes? I mean, has this come up so far or is it just an emerging subject? Well, I, um, due to uh, budget cuts and consolidations, uh, I'm now the chair of a department that includes uh, sociology, which is one area where critical race theory is taught. Um, it is an academic concept. It can be very controversial. Um, but I'm also, I'm rather old school myself. I still like that uh, John Stuart Mill concept, the mar- marketplace of ideas. Let's get those ideas out there and let's have a robust debate. Um, I do think there is some truth to the concern by conservatives about the so-called cancel culture, where sometimes those debates are shut down because some of the speech can be offensive. Uh, so I'll give the conservatives some props for that. But in terms of the critical race theory and academic theory studied by academics and sometimes taught um, that uses race as a lens to view U.S. history, among other things, which is part of the marketplace of ideas and should absolutely be debated and challenged, but it shouldn't be silenced, is now being politicized. And uh, I just said I have some sympathy with conservative concerns about the cancel culture, but it looks like, unfortunately, instead of continuing to be critical of that, where I think in some ways they were in the right, conservatives have now developed a cancel culture of their own, and they're trying to shut down an academic debate instead of uh, taking up their responsibility to represent the other side. Yeah, Bob, what, how can you deal with teach about U.S. politics without digging into history, culture, philosophy of race? It's, it's a part of it. Uh, I, I'm well, you, not, you, not sure how, how, how it stumbled into becoming a political football. Uh, you, you can't, and I, I think Michael alludes to this, part of the, uh, I think part of the problem is it was, you know, you're right, this discussion of American history and American politics and race and all, everything that goes with it is, is indeed that, a very big discussion. And, and, but it's been given a label, critical race theory, and of course with that term critical. And then, you know, people hear that and they, you know, they may, think, oh, my goodness, so this is trying to do a certain thing. But I've taught American government for, oh, my goodness, 25 years, and we discuss all all this stuff. I mean, one of the best discussions we have is over the Declaration of Independence, 
and the people who wrote it, and many of them were slave owners, and then discussing what the words mean and how they've evolved and how could they write this when they were slave, what were their intentions. It's a great discussion. And, uh, you know, we come out of there thinking about a lot of different things. Uh, but, but this idea, at least at the college level, I can't speak to high school because I haven't taught high school. I always laugh when you hear people say, oh, they're trying to brainwash students. And if I ever even tried to brainwash or cram something down a college level student, uh, I would hear about it in class pretty quickly. That's not the intent. So I think the problem is having it given it that label that, you know, that that specific label with the word critical in there. But in terms of politics, Tim, you you said, how did this become you know, such a big issue in terms of pure politics? It's uh, it's a it's a it's an issue to, to rile up voters. Uh, in some cases, Democrats use the issue of uh, Social Security, for example, in Florida. Well, this is uh, an issue that can get, especially, as Michael said, primary voters, voters in a Republican primary to get riled up. And uh, so I would um, argue that in some cases it is a, become a political football. Mm-hmm. Michael Smith, did you, do you think Black Lives Matter is making such an impact in America that some folks have retreated in, back to their core beliefs that revolve around supremacy? I, I'm concerned that that has, in fact, happened. Um, you know, back in the day, we talked about dog whistling, the idea of a uh, uh, symbol that many people don't hear, but certain targeted groups do, and they respond to it. Um, attacking affirmative action as code word for bringing up race and things like that. Um, the, the whistles are loud and clear now, you know, ever since the rise of Donald Trump. Um, people don't hide it anymore. Now, general election exit polling data shows that the number one reason why Kansans voted for Donald Trump is because of the economy, period, full stop. But in the Republican primaries, uh, people have, have remained very bold with this culture war stuff, including endorsing dangerous and toxic conspiracy theories. And um, uh, so this critical race theory stuff could be another dog whistle. As I say, it's really a shame because we could be having a debate about what it means to have a debate about the value of competing ideas. And instead, we're going someplace completely different with it. And we're politicizing this thing. Michael, Bob, what, what, do, what do you think about the what if the 2022 legislature passed a law forbidding the instruction and in critic something called critical race therapy theory? Do you, do you think the faculty would just tap dance around it and you know teach their classes without consideration of that or criminalization of the curriculum is just a scary thing and people will just dodge the issue? Well, it's definitely a, a scary thing. Uh, because, you know, how do you, how do you define it? So as, as I mentioned, my discussion of Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, what he meant, and then, then we discuss him being a slave owner. Is that critical race theory? I don't know. Maybe yeah. under a bill passed by the legislature it is. And then, you know, you know, my, Arrested. So, yeah, it's obviously any time the legislature is, does something like that, it, it can be pretty scary. You two guys could be martyrs for academia. My, my wife would not want me to be, but... <laughs>
Hey, you guys, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. I want to pre- I appreciate your time today. Our thanks to Michael Smith, Emporia State University, and Bob Beatty of Washburn University in Topeka. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thanks for listening.